welcome to From the Library with Love, a podcast for anyone whose life has been changed by reading. For many years now, I have tramped the streets of East London in search of history. Unbeknownst to me, another woman has also been doing the same, but her gaze is fixed on the history you cannot see, the history beneath our feet. Sam Perrin has been a cemetery and death historian for over 20 years, conducting tours of East London plague pits and cemeteries in search of past lives. She holds an MA in Victorian studies from Birkbeck University of London and is currently researching the mass burial sites of epidemic victims. Welcome to the podcast, Sam. Thank you very much, Kate. It's um, it's an absolute pleasure to be here and um, I'm absolutely delighted to be on your podcast. Oh, as am I to have you on and I have so many questions I barely even know where <laughs> barely even know where to start but I'm going to kick off actually by asking how you become a death historian because it's not one that crops up with a school careers advisor often is it <laughs> uh no um do you know um I never expected initially to end up being a historian at all to be honest with you um how I got into this was about well it was just over 20 years ago now I was living in a house and I really enjoy gardening and my housemate at the time uh, was an ex-landscape gardener so the only sort of things that we were allowed to do with the garden was taking out all the weeds from the pond and doing all the dirty work so I thought well I'm going to sign up for landscaping duties at the cemetery that was closest to me which happened to be Highgate at the time and they essentially said well look we don't really need landscapers we are actually in desperate need of tour guides And my brain at that point just went absolutely not because I used to be pathologically shy at that point. And um, yeah, I ended up doing it. You know, I think with repetition and just just the the excitement of discovering new things, I think that of history and, you know, also volunteering at the place and doing tour guiding. It's it's a, it's a, a treasure trove of social history. So that's essentially how I ended up being a cemetery and death historian. I love that. And I love the fact that the the job itself, or we can't really call it a job, it's a vocation almost, is cha- helped you to, you, you said you were pathologically shy. What brought you out of yourself, in a sense, because you had to become more public facing and tackle that fear of, I don't know what, being around people or public speaking. What what was that? Uh, I think I still get it now to an extent. I mean, you know, before the beginning of each tour, I still get a sense of nervousness and anticipation, but in a good way. But I think it's definitely, if anybody listening does, you know, suffer from shyness and would like to overcome it, I highly recommend becoming a tour guide (laughs) because it definitely gives you the confidence to speak to people. And there are other other sort of gifts, I suppose, if you look at it that way, you you can um, sort of assess an audience and also determine, I don't know, based on the people on your tour, for example, what you can include, what you perhaps shouldn't include. So it is very much a case of becoming a lot more aware of of dealing with people and becoming more uh, attuned. Yeah, I love that because I'm I'm the same. I mean, I I was chronically shy as a child and that's why I became a writer, I think, because I love to sort of just lose myself in other worlds. But then suddenly having to write a book, you actually have to talk about it. And (laughs) therein becomes another thing. So it's really interesting to see how, in a sense, the dead helped you to come out of your shell in its most rawest form. You know, I never thought of it like that. You're absolutely correct. Yeah, um, (laughs) that's absolutely spot on. I love this concept as well of a cemetery being a treasure trove of social history and I think that's that's absolutely true of course because it's past lives and and the dead have so much to tell us what is your fascination with the dead what do you think they can tell us about who we are 
it's a really good question. I think in a lot of respects, and I keep finding this again and again, um, it definitely has cemented home to me that history repeats itself over and over and over again, whether it be uh, from a political sense or anything else for that matter. History just keeps repeating itself. And I think something else that I find very interesting about researching the dead is that in some instances, you can walk past a headstone that has absolutely nothing to go on. Nothing, a name, a date. And when you research them, you think, oh, my God, if I blinked, I would have missed this headstone. And this person led, led a remarkable life. But, and nothing's memorialized in that headstone. And um, I just find that sense of all of their accomplishments being there to discover incredibly exciting. I love that. That actually sent a little chill up my spine, the thought that you, we walk past these gravestones that are covered in lichen and kind of moss and, and the names long worn off. And yet some of well, we all all leave extraordinary lives in our own way, don't we? And that all these people there have been forgotten, really. Unless you're incredibly notorious or famous or whatever, you're going to eventually be consigned to history. So why why do you think that we dress death up as macabre? And why is it shrouded in mystery when surely it's one of the very few things in life guaranteed to come to us all? I've been thinking about this a lot recently, actually. And the first reason, and it's something that I bring up on some of my cemetery tours, is that I think particularly after the First World War, if I go back to the Victorian period, for example, I think people were very much more hands-on when it came to dealing with their dead. If somebody would die in their house that they were born and grew up in, their body would be displayed on the kitchen table with their family surrounding them, where they'd have visitors come in and see them. Uh, they would be taken care of by their nearest and dearest. And I think since the First World War going forward, I think a lot of those responsibilities have been passed out and outsourced to people like undertakers and morticians and, in some cases, embalmers. So I think the connection that we once had, that physical connection that we once had with the dead, has now subsequently been cut off. So there, that has created an aura of, I don't know, I suppose mystery to a way, but also fear. Mm. It's fear of the unknown. And then from, from a, a second perspective, and this is something um, I, I thought of recently, we now live in the digital age, and I think with sites like Instagram, for example, I'm not having a pop at them, by the way. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I think that there is such an emphasis on the aesthetic and everything being beautiful and pretty and lovely to look at. And, you know, living in an age, too, where we are encouraged, particularly as women, to live longer, look younger. And I think that there's this sense of death and decay is brushed under the carpet in favour of the aesthetic, uh, a physical aesthetic. And I think that that indeed has contributed to people associating death with being something that's sinister and spooky. And as, as you rightly said, it is something that will happen to every single one of us at the end of the day. That's really interesting perspective, Sam. I never thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right that in, we're all encouraged to be stay younger for longer and be youthful, mm -hmm. vital, and age is not... In, in a way, it's sort of... I think maybe things are ch changing slightly, but age mm -hmm. is frowned upon, isn't it? Don't get old. You know, we, we worship at the Temple of Youth, don't we? And we don't like to think that it could happen and will happen to us. So I suppose yeah. death is the, the end conclusion of that, isn't it? Well, I mean, if, if you look at... Uh, uh, recently, I picked this up on telly, actually. If, if you look at interviews with older, more accomplished actresses, some of them do actually say, you know, you get past a certain age and you think roles are going to come to you and they don't. So, that, I mean, that's just one small example. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think we definitely are much more disassociated with death itself than we ever have been before. But fortunately, now there is uh, the death positive movement, which I think is a very healthy thing that's emerged. Well, I've not heard of that. The death positive movement. 
Indeed. Um, I mean, I think we always used to be death positive up until about this, the First World War, to be honest. So this is kind of, I suppose, going back to that period where people were a lot more comfortable talking about death, you know, and, and not brushing it under the carpet because they found it sinister or it made them anxious. You can actually get things like death cafes now where you can go and have a cup of tea and openly discuss death, dying and anything associated with it. In fact, one of my lovely friends, uh, Gemma Norbert, she does a death cafe fairly frequently. Uh, I don't know when the next one is coming up, but um, you can look her up on social media. Her name is Mortuary Gem, at Mortuary Gem. Okay. Oh, I'm going to look that up. Hmm. So, so interesting, Sam. And let's talk a bit now, if we may, about your tours and your area of expertise, which is going back to, I suppose, the the 17th century and the arrival of the bubonic plague to our shores. And we were talking a little bit about this before I clicked record. Hmm. And what is our fascination with the plague? Let's, can you start by talking us through the disease, how it arrived and the kind of how very quickly it took hold? Sure. I mean, um, I've got to be honest, one of the reasons I really enjoyed taking this tour is leading the um, Play Pits of East London tour is because it's actually out of my comfort zone. My area of focus is oh. on all things Victoriana, uh, the long 19th Oh, okay. I apologize. No, no, not at all. Um, so this is something that I found something to, to not just challenge myself and an opportunity to learn, but I find it absolutely fascinating. The first reason is, is because, and this does relate to my experience working as a, a cemetery tour guide and historian within Victorian cemeteries. One of the things I found so interesting about doing hidden plague pits of East London is that the Victorians were very much about having, in some cases, those who could afford to do so, having big showy monuments that told people about who they were. Uh, the idea of being remembered was paramount. So in some instances, you'd have, you know, Mr. J. Smith, who used to live at 123 Briar Street, for example. In some instances, they'd actually have a physical address on the headstone where these people used to live in life. And it was all about perpetuity. You know, the monument, in some cases, monuments were purchased by family members in perpetuity from a cemetery company. And then they, in turn, would tend that uh, particular plot and plant flowers and make sure that it was looked after for time and memoriam. And I find that really contrasting in respect of how plague victims were put into, in some instances, pits, and in some instances, very organized burial rituals. You know, there, there is a, if you look at some of the images of people, cart, you know, dumping plague pit victims into big old plague pits, it looks like they were unceremoniously buried, which they were. But then in other instances, like at Bedlam, for example, when they were doing the crossrail um, excavation, there was an observation that people were actually laying in neat rows, lying east to west. So there was some kind of decorum and respect given to the dead that might surprise some people, given, you know, you look at some of the images of people being dumped off the back of a card. So and, and those two things in contrast, I found really fascinating. And that's something that really... I don't know, it's just spurred me on with, with researching this, but sorry, I've just, I've re- realised I've just waffled on and haven't answered your question. Um, <laughs> but it was all very interesting though. <laughs> um, you know, we, with the plague, I think that the bubonic plague was, it's not something that's new to England or the United Kingdom. You know, I think the most deadly one that ever came up to the best of my knowledge would be the Black Death, which surfaced in 1348. And then um, you had subsequent outbreaks in 1592 and 3, 1603, 1625, 1636, 1638, and then 1665, which was known as the Great Plague. So every 20 or so plus minus years, the plague would hit the United Kingdom. And so it wasn't, I wouldn't say it wasn't a shock for people, but it wasn't something that they were completely unfamiliar with. Now, it arrived in the UK. One of the first places that it was said to have really hit London hard was St. Giles. So 
that was later going to be the space for St Giles Rookery in the Victorian period. But it was a, a place in London that was absolutely poverty stricken. You know, hygiene back in the 17th century. Oh, my goodness. When I was researching this, it was absolutely appalling. I thought the Victorians were bad. Oh, no. <laughs> um, the early modern modern period was absolutely horrendous. And this is one of the things or the reasons why the plague flourished as it did, because people would dump, you know, human waste, animal waste, food scraps, which in turn would attract rats. And then the fleas, which contained the, the bacteria, mucinous pestis, would then attach themselves to all of the pets. And hence it would spread that way. And with there being so much filth in the streets and these small, you know, poverty-stricken alleyways, the, the plague very quickly made its way from St. Giles through to um, even more poverty-stricken areas like Whitechapel and Stepney. And that's, that's the areas that were hit the hardest during the bubonic plague in London, to the best of my knowledge. As with everything pertaining to disease, unfortunately, it seems that the areas that were poor are often yeah. hit the hardest. Of course, of course, uh, as, it is, as it is now, as it was then. Quite, absolutely that. Now, how did people first realise that they had the disease? Uh, well, this used to manifest itself, um, first of all, with uh, fever. Uh, that was one of the things that would come through. There are actually three different kinds of plagues. This is something that I, I learned whilst researching. There's the bubonic plague, which affects the lymph nodes. There's the septicemic plague, which affects the blood. And then there's the pneumonic plague, which affects the lungs. Now, the pneumonic plague, I believe, is the most deadly of the three. But the symptoms for the bubonic plague included fever. You'd often get delirium. You'd have painful swellings in the lymph nodes in the neck, the pits, or your armpits rather, your groin. These were known as buboes. And after a period of time, the buboes would turn black, which is how I suspect the plague was called the Black Black Death back in the 14th century. You'd also have things like vomiting, muscle cramps, coughing up blood. Um, it's, it's hideous, absolutely horrendous. And usually death would occur within one week of the first symptoms. But for the first few days, sometimes you wouldn't be symptomatic at all. Apparently, um, and D Daniel Defoe, as well as Samuel Pepys, cover this incredibly well. If I may, I'm just going to steal a little bit out of... Um, yeah, please do. This is taken from a journal of the plague year by Daniel Defoe. And it says, the plague, as I suppose all distempers do, operated in a different manner on different, co different constitutions. Some were immediately overwhelmed with it, and it came to violent fevers, vomitings, insufferable headaches, pains in the back, and so up to ravings and ragings with those pains. Others with swellings and tumours in the neck or groin or armpits, which till they could be broke, put them into insufferable agonies and torment, while others, as I've observed, were silently infected. And apparently what he's talking about with the tumours, apparently when you pop them, this did provide some kind of relief. But I can't imagine that really helping to making it less... Uh, contagious probably so, more so yeah absolutely and um, untreated the bubonic plague progresses to septicemic plague which infects the bloodstream and then if that's untreated the pneumonic and septicemic have a hundred percent mortality rate but how did they treat it though i thought there was no treatment for it oh oh, oh i'm so glad i'm so glad you brought this up because <laughs> in researching this there are some of the things that i've come across that are uh, they seem like madness now but back in the day i think people genuinely believed in you see, I think what we have to bear in mind here is that the era in which the, the Great Plague took place was still one of religious fervour. You also still, with that um, in mind, you also have to bear in mind that a lot of people were also incredibly, incredibly superstitious. So, for example, um, at, the, at the end of 1664, in December, actually, this is just an example, a huge 
comet was seen shooting over London, illuminating the skies. And, and this in itself was deemed to be a harbinger of doom, a really, really exceedingly bad omen. People genuinely believed that this was going to bring something you know, awful. It was six months later that in fact actually happened. Not, not, not that it was the comet's fault, but just I'm just using this to demonstrate a point. What people used to do was, for one example, was that they used to collect urine and put lavender and, and also treacle and mix that up and use that as a tincture and drink it, um, which might seem absolutely repulsive, but for whatever reason, people believed that this would help cure the plague. Unfortunately, with a lot of the plague doctors, nobody actually appointed those guys. Did you know that? No, self-appointed experts. Absolutely that. You've nailed it. Self-appointed experts. So, But the odd thing was is that in many instances with the plague doctors themselves, they used to wear those horrible masks with uh, the beaks being filled with very sweet smelling things because people generally believed that the plague and many other diseases was caused by miasma. Do you know what that is? Is that like in a cloud in the air? Like Exactly. Um, Airborne it, it, contagions, I suppose. Yeah. And I mean, they, they weren't wrong in that. By miasma, I think uh, and this, this was a term used up until the Victorian period. It was bad odours and odours of decay. So they believed that other diseases would thereby be caused by miasmas. We'll be back after a quick break. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts, or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. Uh, really? So it would almost like draw uh, bacterium into this cloud, if you like. Exactly. And so in many instances, what the people during the Great Plague did was they started fires because they believed that they were cleansing the air. Londoners used to carry amulets and charms containing the poison of the toad to ward off the plague. They also had remedies like a daily teaspoon of treacle mixed with urine, um, believe it or not. You could be bled by leeches, which I believe was a very common way of dealing with any kind of disease, generally speaking. You sniffed a sponge soaked in vinegar. Now, vinegar is something that I've come across numerous times in researching this and that it was viewed as being somewhat of a disinfectant. So when there were towns and you know small villages that were that had contained themselves in order to self-isolate, I guess. In order to get food, what they used to do is they used to wash the money in vinegar and leave it on a rock. It was called a plague stone, I believe. And then it would have kind people who come and drop off food and take the money from them. So they'd try and purify the money before handing it over to people supplying them with food and, you know, other supplies. Um, interesting. So vinegar was like the sort of, you know, that their equivalent of hand sanitizer. Yeah, I guess it was when you look at it that way, exactly. Yeah. To it in their defense, I mean, I know hair dryers weren't invented then, but at least they didn't have somebody suggesting they blew hot air up their noses. I'm not going to mention any. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bursting buboes, that was another one. And drinking fortified wine, of course. Of course it was. Um, this is apparently according to get to, to, so that you could sweat it out. Now, one doctor apparently advised avoiding the following foods. The boiled herbs of cauliflowers, cabbage, colworts, spinach and beets, which is odd because those things are all very highly nutritious, vitamin-rich. Yeah. More advice was overfill not your bodies with meat, which is hard of digesture, for it breeds ill humours. Now, humours was another uh, thing that people at the time believed 
oversaw your health system. Um, in other words, it was blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. And it was believed to affect your whole being from your health and your feelings down to your looks and your actions. And if your body was imbalanced of these four humors, you would then fall ill. So um, as it comes from Hippocrates, actually, from ancient Greece. Yeah, I think, you know, the people during the time of the Great Plague, it was, it was a theory that had been going on for, you know, for a thousand and a bit years by that point. So it just goes to show how... I mean, we, we, can, we now look at this with a 21st century perspective and think, oh, well, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. How could you possibly believe those things? But uh, medicine and science hadn't nearly advanced to the standards that we now enjoy today. Of course. So, of course yeah. So, of course, some, you know, people continued um, using, you know, all of these somewhat crazy remedies to try and make sure that they weren't infected or they could cure themselves of the infection. Yeah. I suppose it's easy to laugh at those things now, but in the absence of any, any other knowledge... What else could they do? It's human nature to want to try and heal yourself and to do whatever you can to protect yourself. So, you know, you, you would do those things, wouldn't you? Is it right that once somebody had knew that they were infectious or had contracted it, they had to paint a black cross on their door? Am I completely imagining that? No, no, you're, you're absolutely correct. What used to happen is that when somebody was identified within a family of having contracted the, the plague, the doors would be locked and the entire family would be locked in that home. So if any one of them was infected, chances are there would be a 100% mortality rate in that home. They would paint a giant red cross on the uh, the door and um, God have mercy upon us, you know, painted over the city. There's actually a wonderful uh, painting that you can find online if you put in sort of crosses, plague, a Google image. And you can see it gives you a very, very good idea as well as like all the smoke in the streets. I mean, it must have been incredibly eerie if you think about it because oh, yeah. you, know, you had the watchers who would essentially watch the homes to make sure that nobody would escape because people did try and escape. When they realised the finality of being locked in there with somebody infected, you can imagine people went hysterical because they realised they were going to die. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, apparently some watchers were um, assaulted, came across one um, unsubstantiated story of a watcher being killed as somebody so desperate to make their escape from their home. And they used to sit outside and essentially make sure that nobody got out. So you have the watchers, then you had this, I believe they were called seekers who would go out and identify the infected homes. Then you had the plague doctors wandering around, you know, giving all kinds of so-called cures. Uh, and then you had these smoke-filled streets. And I mean, amongst that, you had a very eerie silence because, you know, a large number of the population were, was either dead or had left London entirely to go out to the country to avoid being affected. And then you had the this, this screams and this, the noises of the dying. You had the screams and, you know, uh, fear and panic of the people still alive trying to get out. So it must have been somewhat like a horror film, you know, walking. You painted through- such a, an evocative picture there. I was in that street as you were saying that. I could imagine, you know, the, the eerie silence punctuated by the screams and those self-appointed people in society, the watchers and the seekers. And I mean, it is. It's it, it. It sounds like a horror film. Exactly. You took the words out of my mouth. That sounds exactly like a horror film. And then imagine walking around and you just happen to bump into a plague doctor. I can't think of anything more terrifying other than the catching the disease itself, to be honest with you. And then, of course, thrown into that, you have the, the was it the, the, the death carts that used to sort of rattle over the cobbles? And they would they ring a bell to announce that it was coming to bring out your dead? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that, that's another thing, you know, the the, the cartwheels going over and the clip clapping of the hooves and all of the stuff. I think it makes a very evocative scene to try and place yourself into. Uh, they, they were the, they were called cartmen, and uh, this is another thing. Interestingly enough, I came across Samuel, good old Samuel Pepys. He he's given such an, an amazing insight into life during the plague. Uh, apparently, there was a curfew of nine p.m. and that didn't stop him going out. So he got out and you know went around. And but he was saying that when he first encountered the houses in St Giles, 
He went and saw, you know, the Red Crosses, et cetera, et cetera. And, or at least it came to his, his um, knowledge. He went out and bought some chewing tobacco. And this is what's interesting, and this does relate, relate to the Cartman, because a number of the pictures of the Cartman that I came across with illustrations, carrying the bodies of the dead, picking them up, dropping them off into these mass pits, they're often seen as smoking because they believed that the smoke was actually good for you. They encouraged children to smoke because they believed that it was cleanse the air of anything bad. So if you look at some of these pictures, um, you can actually see them exhaling smoke with a cigarette in their mouth. And Sam, Samuel Pepys himself went and purchased some chewing tobacco to chew and or smoke, whichever he did, because he believed that this was something that would repel the bacteria. So fascinating. God, I'm, it's, I'm immediately, I want to go and read Samuel Pepys' um, diaries on the extracts on the, on the play, because... What what an evocative picture that you know you've painted and he, and he writes. So you say that it that St Giles was one of the the worst affected areas, and of course you know the the poorer areas like Whitechapel and Stepney. So can you talk us through some of the lesser known plague pits in London? So for example, I was fascinated to hear that Sainsbury's in Whitechapel, which is a place I've been to many times, is built over a plague pit. Is that correct? Ah, do you know what? I'm really glad that you asked that because that's a, a reported or purported plague pit. But um, I went online and did a little bit of homework, and I don't quite know where the story originated that Sainsbury's and Whitechapel was built over a plague pit. I can tell you this. It's definitely built over what used to be the Albion Brewery from the 19th century. Now, I came across a report. Um, it's an archaeological monitoring and recording summary that was done by the an organisation called Archaeological Solutions. And they did this um, monitoring and recording at number one Cambridge Heath Road, which is Sainsbury's. And I'll just read you a very short excerpt. It says here, no human remains or any other evidence of the 17th century plague pit was found and the site had clearly suffered significant truncation in the past. There's also a very small uh, excerpt of that that does say they did find evidence of the brewery being there, but nothing purporting or re related to the plague whatsoever. So in a weird way, it was kind of nice to have that dispelled as being... Okay, um, that's interesting. So that, that's a myth. So where are some of the areas that we can say with some certainty that there were plague pits? Well, one of the most interesting places, it's Finsbury Pest House and Plague Pits. Now... If you go into Old Street, there's a little street that comes off just Old Street next to very close to where the Argos is. And if you go up that road, it's now known as uh, Bath Street, but it was formerly known as Plague, oh, sorry, I beg your pardon, Pest House Row. Now, you, what is a pest house? You might be wondering at this point. I am. <laughs> there, were, um, there were buildings that were built on the outskirts of town for sufferers of diseases to avoid the infection of others. So they were also known as plague houses, fever sheds, and pest hospitals. So the, the pest house in fin Finsbury Fields, it was an area known as Finsbury Fields, and that was used repeatedly in the 1603, 1625, and 1655 outbreaks. So that was, I mean, something I find really macabre. There's a lovely image that you can find online if you put in Finsbury Fields, plague pit, or pest house. There's a lovely illustration of somebody being carried in by two men on a um, stretcher and as they're passing that in the very very close vicinity to the pest house there's a huge big plague pit so can you imagine being carried in there and actually seeing the place where you knew you were going to end up oh, it's, God. it's very sobering very it is it is and you say that is it true that there are tens if not thousands of plague pits dotted around modern day london i read that somewhere that might be wildly inaccurate but how many i mean oh, how many would you estimate or that, that we know of at any rate Oh, my word. You know, this is a very difficult question for me to answer because one of the things that I found as evidence with the 
you know, Sainsbury's and Whitechapel is that some places purported to be a plague pit were not. And then you have evidence that, you know, even somewhere like a park that we now sit on and have lunch on a Sunday afternoon, enjoying the sun and the sunshine. Nine times out of 10, it was either a parish churchyard or in some instances, it was a plague pit. You know, when researching this, uh, again, toward the end of the tour that I've, I've been taking, one of the stops was going to be, you know, the, the Whitechapel Sainsbury's. But then further along, I just happened to find a park. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it's very close by. And it memorializes a young man who I believe was the victim of, of racism. Yes, um, yes. The name of it, sorry, I've got brain fog. I think he was called Ali. Ali, I can't remember the same. Yes. I'll have to look it up. But he was, yes, he was murdered by um, the National Front, I think, wasn't it? Yes. In the 1980s, um, terrible victim of racism. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. that, that park often was referred to by people that I interviewed for as research for my Second World War-based novels as Itchy Park. Um, oh. And they called it Itchy Park because it's where a lot of, the you know the down and outs and the homeless used to sleep uh, particularly those probably suffering from post-traumatic shock post-world war one so a lot of people that were destitute and washed up sort of ended up living there and so it, it earned this slightly unfavorable nickname of itchy park and that's the same so. park yeah you've just sparked something in my brain you know itchy Koo park is it by the faces or the small faces I'm wondering whether that has any bearing on that particular. Probably. I think I think Itchy Park is a kind of generalisation. I've, mm-hmm. I've heard other parks refer. It's not specific to Whitechapel. I've heard other places referred to like that. Oh, I, I think I'm... it's just a place where people that were just washed up, destitute, homeless, mm-hmm. penniless, ended up living because, in the absence of a welfare state, what else or anything else? What else could they do? I think particularly um, veterans of the first war. So. That's interesting. So that park. Um, yeah, but that's something that I did come across that said uh, it's supposedly the church that that park used to be attached to was apparently also used as a place where plague victims were received. Now, the thing is, I, I think it was going to be very difficult to determine with absolute accuracy until a an archaeological dig has been conducted on every single one of these purported plague pits. I mean, until then, unless you find you know, human remains, for example, I just, yeah. it's its very difficult for me to tell because I'm not an archaeologist. But um, that said, I'd imagine that there are far more than we think they are. And I think they're going to be in places that will likely surprise us. Yeah. So as I say, like one of the things that I found astonishing about this, this tour whilst researching it is that we are literally walking over the dead. London is, is like a deathly layer cake. Bunhill Fields, for example, that's where one of the, my, that's where my tour actually kicks off. Bunhill Fields is an amazing spot because it is literally been witness to London's evolution for centuries. And I mean, that, for example, was reported to be a Saxon burial ground going back centuries. Then shortly after that, you had the clearing out of St. Paul's Charnel House, thanks to the restoration of the monarchy. And all of the bones within the Charnel Houses were then taken to Bunhill Fields and dumped. I think it was, um, was it a thousand? A thousand cartloads of human bones dumped there. And that's why Bunhill gets its name, Bone Hill. And then on top of that, you have the Dissenter Cemetery as it was born. And then later on, you had the plague. Now, apparently, Bunhill Fields was supposedly consecrated for the reception of plague victims, even though it was a nonconformist burial ground. But for some reason, I've never been able to prove that it has or it hasn't. Um, Some people have said that it actually never, ever was used as a a plague burial. Now, I, I find that astonishing because why wouldn't you, you know? Parish churchyards filling up and any open ground was open game for people being, you know, received there as as a plague pit. So why wouldn't Bunhill Fields? But um, I suppose the point I'm making with all of this stuff is that it is layer upon layer upon layer of centuries of of death. (laughs) So and uh, I think London really is the city of the dead in that respect, because, you know, just going back to the 
the term I used earlier, it is like a layer cake of death. That is such a way of putting it, a layer cake of death. And I suppose it is all those layers of history. You know, it's such an ancient city, isn't it? It stands to reason that we are walking and living upon the dead in London. And where is Bonehill? Um, oh, Bunhill. It's in um, Old Street. Bunhill Fields Burial Ground. It's very close to Old Street Station on City Road. Gosh, I'm gonna have to go, I'm gonna have to go and pay attention to that. Oh God, I love it. And and Black a Black Heath as well. Is that is this a myth or is that named after the bodies buried there? In researching this, um, I have. That's interesting. You should mention that because somebody asked me about this on Twitter recently, and there was a, a report from a was it a nearby historical society that they found no evidence of it being a plague pit but apparently it is called it was called according to some people Blackheath Park because of well, the, the black in it pertained to the black death so um, I'm not a hundred percent sure about that one but from what I can recall I mean anybody's welcome to sort of pipe up and, and chip in at this point and correct me if I'm wrong but I believe that it isn't okay oh that's interesting because again that's a very I mean I think if most people would say Blackheath oh yeah that's a place where they dump the bodies of yeah. you know plague victims how are the ones that we do know and we can say with certainty that are plague pits how were they discovered is it often that you know for example with the crossrail excavations mm-hmm. they found you know various significant sites of interest and so forth how are they generally uncovered well uh, i'll use an example from one of the stops on the plague pit tour it's called gower's walk and it's very close to Whitechapel. it's just off the the main road and that was excavated i think in 1893 now what it used to be was a, a, a mr sheen's burial ground i've got stories about mr sheen he is, he's an absolute <laughs> ne'er-do-well for the lack of a better term, but he was a 19th century undertaker who used to run this burial ground. I, I'm guessing it was one of the ones that was renowned for being disgusting. I, I could go off on this on another separate note, but a lot of the parish churchyards then and burial spaces were absolutely disgusting. And he owned this and allegedly it had been said that there had been a plague put underneath it. And in 1894, later on in the, in the same century, there was an excavation that was done to knock down the tenement housing that was there and build a warehouse for a local wine merchant. And they uncovered, I think, about 200 skulls. No no evidence of any coffin, coffins or coffin handles or anything like that. 200 skulls and a multitude of bones, but no coffins, which I find astonishing because I researched Mr. Sheen and the, Mr. Sheen, sorry, Mr. Sheen, and found that in many instances, uh, he got into a lot of trouble with the law, by the way, uh, but in many instances when he was reported about his burials, they were actually buried in coffins. So that, that's one that is a bit of a mystery to me. Because so is he like some sort of charlatan of death, Mr. Sheen? He was. Oh, he's he's one of my um, nemeses of the 19th century when it comes to burial reform and ne'er-do-wells. You mentioned as well Oldgate, that that had some significance. Well, is, the Oldgate is, um, well, it's St. Botolf, St. Botolf's Oldgate Station. Now, um, Daniel Defoe goes into this and he describes, although what, what you, I think needs to be done in, in this instance is a pinch of salt must be liberally sprinkled over some of the stuff that Daniel Defoe did or said rather about it, but it says... This is describing the pit or the alleged pit at Allgate Station. A terrible pit it was, and I could not resist my curiosity to go and see it. As near as I may judge, it was about 40 feet in length and about 15 or 16 feet broad. And at the time I first looked at it, about nine feet deep. But it was said that they dug it near 20 feet deep afterwards in one part of it, till they could go no deeper for the water. For they had, it seems, dug several large pits before this. For though the plague was long coming into our parish, yet when it did come, there was no parish in or about London where it raged with such violence as in the two parishes of Allgate and Whitechapel. 
um, you can find and again another illustration online that demonstrates the orgate plate pit, the alleged orgate orgate plate pit. But something I found very interesting about this is that they did discover in St. Botoff's, the actual church itself, they found the mummified remains of a 12-year-old boy. And uh, this is another image that you can find on uh, the Welcome Image Collection is amazing. It's such a wonderful repository. But the print is an exact representation of a boy said to be about 12 years old who was found, and I'm quoting this, erect with his clothes in on a vault under St. Botov's Allgate Old Church in the year 1742, and is supposed to have been shut in at the time of the plague in London 1665, as the vault had not been opened from that period till the time above mentioned when the church was pulled down. The extraordinary circumstance of this boy is that his skin, fibres and intestines are all dried and very little of his bones, appear, very little of his bones appears and weighs about 18 pounds. He is in the possession of Mr. J. Rogers, number two Maiden Lane, Wood Street, London. And then it says that the print may be had price two shillings with a ticket for a sight of the boy. Now, Rogers was a coal merchant. And um, I know that, you know, the churchyard next to the actual church or the churchyard attached to St. Botox was definitely used as a plague pit. But that's a very interesting little surprise nugget that I had never expected to find. You know, these mummified remains. It also just goes to show that I suppose in the Georgian period, I mean, hey, everyone loves something that's of the macabre and, you know, the the ghoulish. So uh, Mr. Mr. Rogers, as it turns out, was actually selling tickets to see the mummified remains of this poor lad. Whatever happened to him afterwards, I don't rightly know. But uh, yes, I came across another instance where, and this is something that, I'm, I'm veering off topic ever so slightly, but I think it's something that is quite, in fact, very relevant to COVID and that the effect that it had on people's mental health and um, I came across an academic paper on this, and it was very, very interesting in that, you know, you'd have certain instances where a mother knew her child was going to die and that she, in turn, would probably end up catching this horrible bacteria and dying it from herself, too. The, the stages of anger, fear, paranoia were covered quite extensively in this paper. And something else that I found very interesting, and it also vaguely relates to a body being found in this church, and I cannot remember the, the, the source for love nor money. It really annoys me. I was looking through an old book about churches, and one of them did cover what happened when the, the Great Plague hit. And there was one particular woman who decided to self-isolate. She took enough food with her into the vaults of the church, closed herself in, didn't come out for two weeks. And by the time she'd emerged, the entire village had been dead for except for one other person. And she went back and stayed for the remainder of her life back in that church vault because she couldn't accept that she and one other were the only remaining people out of her in the entire village. That and, is so fascinating. And it's, it's something that I found again and I think this has only come to the fore in our lifetime thanks to COVID I don't want to say thanks to COVID that's completely the wrong term no, but our understanding is more yeah. aligned now we have more perhaps empathy and insight into how it must have felt for them because we've all you know I mean we're, we're lucky aren't we of course because we, yeah. we have the medication and and the you know the access to advanced medical care and science but fundamentally you know we were going into isolation we were dealing with an unknown epidemic for the first time in our lifetimes absolutely that and you know i think the the effects on people's mental health are still far reaching now you know the same can be said for the great plague you know i mean i can't imagine you know losing most of the people that you knew and loved. And it killed such a high percentage of the city. I believe it was um, you know, somewhere near 20%, although some of the figures claim that it could be higher because people often went out into the country, those who could afford to do it. So a lot of the recorded deaths never occurred, or never recorded inside London, or the bills of mortality. Have you heard about those? No, what's the bills of mortality? Oh, um, well, they were 
essentially a report that was published by the government every week because the government actually did have a bit of a plan it was a vague plan but they did have some kind of you know plan of action in place based on previous plagues so every week they'd publish a bill of mortality and in it they would detail how many people had died in london that week and what they died from and i think by the absolute peak of the plague in september 1665 i believe that the highest number of people that had died in a week was 7160 something in one week one week. It's mad, isn't it? 7,000 in one week. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's incredibly, incredibly sobering. Yeah. And uh, I think it uh, also makes you, you know, even though, I don't know, I, I guess it just made me appreciate the time that we currently live in a hell of yeah. a lot more. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Like when we were going through COVID and it was in lockdown and I was actually reading this book Forever Amber, which we talked a little bit about, which was set mm. during the 17th century. And, and it was quite, eerie being in a lockdown reading about you know London in the plague and then the you know when it began and the theatres started closing down and then everybody began you know then fear sort of drifted mm. through the streets and everybody was confined to their homes and then reading it whilst you are in the middle of a of a new and unknown epidemic was quite evocative and quite frightening in, in, in so many ways but it did but I think for me you know I always had the fact that you know we do have modern medicine we do mm. know the science but yes, I suppose at its heart, it's still, you know, we all lost people. We all know people that died. And it, it, I suppose for many of us, it was as terrifying and uncertain and ruinous for people's mental health and lives in ways that we still will never really, we're still dealing with now and will do the ramifications of for many years to come. But it's interesting, I think, isn't it, when you're going through that to learn about past epidemics, right. helps to sort of contextualise, I suppose. Absolutely. And, and something you just mentioned, you know, the closing of the theatres. Guess what they did in London in 1665? Exactly. They closed the theatres. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, there, there was a suspicion. And I remember, you know, um, a friend of mine at the time was so suspicious because I had a bit of um, like a, a stress related cold at the time. She was like, you have to stay out of the house. You're going to bring it in here. You're going to get me infected. And so my point is, is that I think a lot of people were very suspicious of anybody with even a symptom that was not related yeah. COVID. And um, I suppose what that demonstrates is that, you know, we as human beings, I think um, part of us, I suppose, never really changes when it comes to human nature doesn't change. Yeah, does it? Right. Yeah. Yeah, when, with a threat like that, I think, you know, yeah. such a, a natural go to knee jerk reaction. Yeah. For, don't understand that is absolutely potentially deadly. Because you can almost imagine today those people that would have become watchers and seekers during the bubonic plague, you know, those people who've, who who were naturally inclined to kind of check up on society and and be you know they they escape their house and you know yeah. make sure that everybody's doing what they say they're supposed to be doing it brings out that nature in people doesn't it absolutely i mean you know the uh, the government at the time when it first happened uh, the king and all of his court up sticks and left london um, a lot of the major bodies that were overseeing london and running london actually upped and left but there were people who were nominated to stay behind and i think a lot of the people who bore the brunt of actually dealing with plague victims directly were people from the church oh so they were like the nhs of their day in a way i suppose um, i suppose they were yes People used to flock to them for guidance and advice and you know well, why are we being sort of why why is God doing this to us because that they didn't make sense yeah they believed that um you know the plague had been brought upon them because of man's evils that was one of the reasons that they also believed that this had happened and but but one thought that did occur to me as you were talking uh, you know and it's interesting to sort of look at the different roles in society but what about the lot of the person who had to dig the plague pits who was an average plague pit digger for want of a better word who were the people that were who the grisly job that must have 
fallen to them to dig these god awful pits and how hard that must have been you know like there were no bulldozers they were presumably just digging them with spades who were they were they paid maybe we need to look that up maybe there's a novel in that you know the plague digger the plague pit digger (laughs) I think absolutely and um you know I mean I I can't imagine a worse job I really can't I'd rather be you know going back go forward into Victorian London and be um you know in in a job working in the sewers than I would burying dead bodies I did come across a couple of interesting stories going way back before I conducted any of this research where it was said that a lot of these well some of these guys were reported to have you know stolen rings off corpses and um, I'm I'm not trying to paint all of the uh, grave diggers with the same kind of brush of course but yeah it's again in some of the pictures that I have actually seen if you look at them very carefully some of the illustrations again all of those men are smoking cigarettes in the hope to ward off yeah close to so much death of course you would wouldn't you would do whatever you could to protect yourself but what a grisly job I can't imagine anything worse quite frankly no well I feel like we've taken a little dive into um the bubonic plague there and (laughs) (laughs) that cheery little chat let's let's move on to cemeteries Tell us about your tours, because you run these wildly successful cemetery tours. How many hours would you say you spend a month in a cemetery? Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> for research purposes or for, for pleasure? <laughs> that sounds ghoulish, for pleasure in a cemetery. But um, again, uh, thanks to the, you know, for COVID, cemeteries, I think, have become a, a place of, well, I wouldn't say recreation, but a place of, of contemplation where one can learn and enjoy the wildlife. And I think uh, since that, walking around a cemetery has become a lot more common because people wanted to get out and get fresh air with, without encountering other people, you know, in yeah. the vicinity. Yeah. No, my, my editor, we were talking recently about what do, what we did during lockdown to survive. And she said, oh, yeah, I used to go to Tower Hamlet Cemetery. And I, she said, I know it sounds weird, but I find it, I found it strangely restful. And I would sit amongst the, the graves. And she said, I really enjoyed it. It was a peaceful, quiet place of contemplation, mm-hmm. reflection, which is what you were sort of ties into what you were saying. I mean, one of the things that I found, a question that's come up repeatedly over the years is, oh, do you not find it weird or spooky? Does it not make you afraid of walking around there? And, you know, my stock response to that would be, I'm more afraid of the living than I am of the dead. That was um, good reason. <laughs> um, the, the second point is that all you have to do is open your eyes and read some of the headstones. And what comes across overwhelmingly is the sense of love and loss in that cemetery. It's not a spooky place. The, their feelings and, and of, of, or the memories of, of the dead by their relatives are come through loud and clear when you look at some of those headstones. And it, the sense of love is overwhelming. And so I don't know how anybody could say, well, it's spooky, it's sinister. I mean, you know, maybe if you went back to, you know, the beginning of the 19th century, maybe the, when body snatching was happening, perhaps they were spooky and sinister, but yeah. that wasn't the dead. Again, that's that's because of the living. But I, I do find them wonderfully cathartic places to wander around, as well as being filled with a lot of wildlife. Mm, yeah, that's true, actually, isn't it? And especially mm. in London, you know, foxes and squirrels and all sorts there. I was going to say, yeah, no, but abundance of bird life and insects. And in many respects, I think uh, they do offer a lovely green biodiverse sanctuary to go wander around in and I'm, I'm so pleased in a way that because of the pandemic cemeteries have come to life as it were if that makes yeah. any sense yeah 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 and they deserve yeah. and then they deserve to don't they absolutely and I'm glad that they've been brought to people's um you know consciousness to as, as being a place to go and have a wander around and enjoy the silence and enjoy um taking in the atmosphere because the, you know that's what the Victorians did when the garden cemeteries were built yeah. um you know, it was common to go and have a wander around there and you know so we're almost, almost come full circle with how we need to be more victorian and also if what you were saying 
earlier about that, that actually most local sort of recreation parks are built over plague pits anyway you're never mm. very far from the dead anyway so whether you're in a park or a cemetery it makes no no odds in some ways does it well, I mean, uh, you know, Bunhill Fields, for example, after the uh, 18, uh, well, the 19th century burial acts, um, I think one took place in 1852, that was the Metropolitan Burial Act that forbade any parish churchyard to receive any more dead because of the disgusting state of them. And the following year, they banned the practice outright. So, but Bunhill Fields actually closed as a burial ground and then opened up again a few decades later as a public park. And you could actually buy tickets to go in and visit the public park. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. And I mean, you know, I, there's a one that I passed when I used to live in um, Hackney. The name completely escapes me, but it's, it's quite common to go into some of these places and actually see some of the headstones have been moved and put up against the walls. And it's now a place where, you know, people go sunbathing and have a picnic. And yeah, it's, it's a lot more common than people think. What's your favourite cemetery, Sam? Oh, that's a hard question. I've never met a cemetery I haven't liked, let's put it that way. I think the one that I do love, oh, that is a difficult question. Abney Park is up there because I think it is probably, out of the Magnificent Seven, probably the most punk rock out of them in that it is the final resting place of a lot of rebels and radicals and people who gave a two-fingered salute to the power. They basically fought the power. It's, it's full of abolitionists, suffragettes. It's people who you know, campaigned and risked jail for establishing rights that we currently now enjoy. Fascinating. Now I'm going to have to visit Abney Park. But tell oh, us about some of the people buried there. One of the men who I read about in one of your previous talks, a man called William Hone, who was a bookseller and a journalist, I believe. Can you tell us a bit more about us? Because did he, about him, I believe he exposed the practices of people incarcerated in Bedlam, the lunatic asylum. And as I was reading that, is... Do you, when you're saying Bedlam, are you referring to the one in Bethnal Green or is Ooh, that separate? That, that's a very good question because I know at one point it used to be at where the Imperial War Museum now stands. I'm trying to think about the plaque that's currently on the wall of Liverpool Street Station in the year that it goes back to. And I want to say, oh, no, do you know, I'm, I'm not sure of the timings on this one. but Fine, but d- just tell us about William Hone then because and, and what he exposed. Well, I mean, he was a, a journalist and a bookseller and he came from a very non-conformist background. In other words, his family didn't subscribe to the Church of England. So you had, um, you know, a lot of people who lived in the area of, of Hackney and Stoke Newington are from dissenting backgrounds. And yes, he published a report that shocked politicians and the public alike, exposing the conditions of people who were incarcerated in Bedlam and showed the horrific reality for what it was. I don't know how much of an effect it had on actually changing things at that point, but he did bring an awareness to a lot of people about the horrendous circumstances and conditions that people have been locked up in. And um, I, I respect him for that. I suppose it's one of the first instances of investigative journalism, really. Yeah, how interesting. So there he is buried. He, so he's buried in Abney Park. Yeah. And another lady who who's caught my eye was called Ethel Haslam, who was a suffragette, who I believe is also buried at Abney Park. Can you tell us a bit more about her? Oh, I love her so much. She, uh, she walked the walk. Uh, she talked and I to- love that you love her. <laughs> no, she, she's absolutely fascinating. She uh, was part of the, I believe she was the secretary of the Ilford branch of the WSPU. And what I enjoy about her is that um, she had a, a, an expanse of interests, but she never backed down. In fact, she was thrown into Holloway for a, a period of time. And 
you know, was put into solitary confinement. And um, I think the reason she did, was put into solitary confinement is that when she was arrested, she broke every one of the 24 windows in her cell and they were sent to solitary confinement and she refused to wear the prison garments. She refused to do the hard labour. So she basically gave a nice big two-fingered salute to the powers that be. Um, she also gives a very harrowing account of the woman being force-fed from the cells surrounding her and the howls that they made and the noises. It's, 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 uh, it's very difficult to read to yeah. be honest. Um, she was only force fed once herself and then released shortly after that. But um, she gives very interesting first-hand accounts of what it was like to living there. And I still love the fact that her parents supported her so much. You know, um, what, one instance where she got, well, her, her, her speciality was um, smashing windows. <laughs> so you had meeting interrupters, you had people who would, you know, set paintings on fire, uh, you know, bomb the post box, whatever the case may be, but Ethel was a window smasher. And she smashed the windows of a small local shop. And in turn, her father started receiving postcards delivered to their home saying, uh, I think they were t taunting the suffragettes in a very, you know, not very nice way and saying, we're going to come and get you, et cetera, et cetera, something along those lines. So Mr. Haslam uh, wrote to the local newspaper saying, we have in fact received these cards. And my response is going to be that if you're welcome to come around to my house and break my windows, but on condition that the men who do this get the same punishment as the women do for doing the same thing. And I was like, yeah, Mr. Hazlitt, you rock. <laughs> well, she, she's a remarkable woman then. And and one more lady that you also flagged up, a lady called Rebecca Jarrett, who was a former prostitute who's also buried at Abney Park, which seems to, like you say, seems to have more than its share of radicals and rebels. What's her story? Uh, well, she was a, a former prostitute, um, as you mentioned. She was actually saved by the Salvation Army, who um, they're one of the, or two of the, there are many, many headstones and graves in this, uh, owned by the Salvation Army in Abney Park, but she was effectively saved. And there was a particular campaign started by W.T. Stead, the journalist. He had decided to do an expose for the Pall Mall Gazette about how easy it would be to procure a young girl for the purposes of prostitution. Now, bearing in mind that prostitution, I think in those days, uh, operated on an almost industrial scale. And so he purchased a young girl by the name of Eliza Armstrong, um, she was 12, I believe. And into this whole big thing, they, the scheme, plot, they, they roped in the Salvation Army. They also had the help of Rebecca Jarrett, a former prostitute uh, who we've talked about. And yes, in essence, he wanted to prove how easy it was and how sinister the world of, of child prostitution was. Because back in those days, the age of consent wasn't 16, it was 13. And as a result of this, this, the articles that they published in the Pall Mall Gazette, it was a series of articles called uh, The Maiden Tale of Modern Babylon. Yeah, they, they did like a weekly, it was a serialized, I believe. And the outrage from the public about the ability that he was actually able to purchase a young girl for the purposes of prostitution shocked and horrified people. And he actually got arrested, as did Rebecca Jarrett, for child abduction. He got three months, I believe, Rebecca Jarrett and some of the other, you know, there was a madam called... Uh, Oh, God, her name escapes me now. But they all got six months, amazingly. So a little bit longer. But yeah, I mean, again, her contribution to that in setting all of this up and being the person who connected the Salvation Army with people from her previous you know, occupation, they, they actually ended up having the age of consent changed to 16 because it was really? the house... Do you know, the House of Lords, it was put forward to them, I think, two or three times to raise, raise the age of consent to 16, and every time they denied it. Isn't that interesting? Oh, well, what does that tell you? I wonder why. It's so interesting that we're talking, and these are just three that we've plucked from Avenue Park Cemetery, and I'm sure there must be so many more, that you say, you know, we, we learn nothing in history, and yet if we look at just a handful of the people buried there and the extraordinary contributions they've made, 
you know, how much we can learn from history and therefore how much we can learn from graveyards and cemeteries. Absolutely that. I mean, you know, just to touch very quickly back on William Hone, he's probably one of my, it's hard to, I feel like I'm picking a favourite child. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> William Hearn is, again, um, I think the reason he was probably the most infamous was that he was arrested for, I think it was um, impious sedition and something libel, where um, he'd, he and uh, Cruikshank had worked together to produce some pub- uh, publications that uh, ridiculed the government. George the Fourth's government, and George the Fourth didn't have a very thick skin, so he arrested him for four charges of um, like impious, reliable, and seditious act. But yes, he was arrested for that, and he spent you know numerous months defending himself, making the apparently his his trial was a cause to celebrate at the time and he attracted a thousand people to Guildhall to watch him defend himself which he did for six hours a day but the thing was he reduced the audiences to tears but they were tears of laughter because he was so funny and essentially he um it, it's created an amazing standard for freedom of the freedom of the press because he, he was essentially released you know let go and acquitted and after that he continued publishing more very anti-government poking he didn't use bombs or guns he used humor to dismantle the entire government. And um, I think that's another reason why he's a remarkable man. I, mean, I suppose you could call him the, you know, the, the Georgian version of somebody like Jonathan Pye, for example, or have I got news for you? Yeah, yeah. He was like the, the sort of founding father of journalism then, I suppose. Yeah, well, I, I suppose it's a satirical journalism aimed at the government. Absolutely. Yeah. So many extraordinary stories. We've only just, and we've really only scratched the surface of it as well. Sam, if people would wanted to have listened to this and would love to join one of your tours, how would they go about it? Oh, um, well, uh, funnily enough, if you don't mind me mentioning it, today is apparently Small Business Saturday. And I have just started up my own tour guiding company focusing on the deathly side of London. I, You can reach me on social media. I don't have a website up and running yet, but I will be doing so shortly. You can find me on, on something like uh, Twitter or X, as it's now known. I'm at Miss Sam Perrin, and my tour guiding company is called Tempest Fugit Tours. So if you look up at Tempest Fugit Tour with no S, I didn't have enough space for that, um, you can find me there or um, just put in Samantha Perrin cemeteries and, you know, there are ways and means of, of tracking me down online. So and, I'll put, and I'll put all the links in as well in, into oh, this. thank you. How kind. Sam, I cannot thank you enough. That has just been a fascinating delve into the past. We don't have enough time, really, unfortunately, for me to ask you all the questions that I would love to, but you have been absolutely enthralling. I have loved listening to you talk about this. So many ideas for novels and books that keep sparking every time you say <laughs> you bring up a new character or a new But I think you'll make me look at cemeteries in a different way now. And I think what you said about a cemetery is a place filled with love is my sort of takeaway from that. Mm. I think I will go and, and walk amongst those graves and think actually of the love and and the 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 lives that the the precious lives that were lived there mm. and have commemorated there. So maybe it's a way to just sort of rethink the way that we view cemeteries and and the people buried there. So thank you for that. I really must thank you and and thank you for your time as well. I know what a busy lady you are. So. I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation. If you have any questions or comments about any of the topics raised in our conversation, or perhaps you have a story you'd like to share, then do get in touch via my website, Facebook or Instagram, details of which are all listed on the podcast. Thanks for listening.